Hi there, I'm Amanda Stevens, and welcome to the Epic Podcast, where I explore the minds of some of the planet's most epic entrepreneurs, business leaders, and visionaries to unearth their incredible stories, their journey to success, how they do what they do, and most importantly, why. My hope is that you'll find some inspiration in each episode, some new ideas, or perhaps just a little motivation to build an epic business and life. Today on the Epic Podcast, you're going to hear a truly epic story, a story you may know a little bit about or think you know, but as you're about to hear, there's much more to the story. You're about to hear the story behind the story of Samuel Johnson and his sister Connie, who together, nearly a decade ago, became the human face of breast cancer in Australia. Samuel Johnson, while well-known and loved as an actor, stole the heart of the Australian public when he rode a unicycle around Australia to raise money for breast cancer research in Connie's honour. The Love Your Sister charity was born. On the day I sat down in the studio with Sam for this interview, Love Your Sister had raised just shy of $10 million for cancer research. And as we go to air today, that figure has well and truly tipped over $10 million, an epic achievement considering there are now over 54,000 registered charities in Australia. As you're about to hear, Samuel Johnson is a man on a mission, and with the spirit of Connie never far away, he's going to change the world. Today, my guest is the true definition of an epic human. Samuel Johnson is an award-winning actor, an author, and a much-loved Australian icon. But most importantly, he's a brother who, faced with his sister's devastating breast cancer diagnosis, has worked tirelessly to not only raise awareness, but raise just shy of $10 million for research into a cure for cancer. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, you are one of the most epic people I know. Um, and there's so much I want to cover in this interview because there's, well, there's so much to you um, and you've done so much. But I want to start perhaps a little self-indulgently, and I'm probably showing my age here a little bit with your acting career because I, like a lot of listeners, um, will have first fallen in love with you, not as Samuel Johnson, but as Evan Wilde. Showing um, your age. <laughs> I am showing my age. Um, <laughs> your character in the top rating show, The Secret Life of Us, which aired for five years from 2001 to 2006. So I want to ask, when you were cast in this show, um, did you ever imagine that it was going to have the run that it did? Uh, when I was initially cast in the show, I said no to the job. Uh, it was a three-year contract and I didn't imagine myself as a television actor. So, um, I was a pretentious young man. I saw myself more as a film or theatre guy. Mm. Um, so I suppose I was, a little, I was a little bit snobbish about television. Uh, so I said no to the role. Um, I didn't, and I didn't even bother to think of whether the show would be successful or not. I was too busy um, hating on the script. Basically, I just thought it was about a bunch of privileged people who lived in a, uh, you know, who lived in a share house, and you know they never seemed to work, and <laughs> I didn't know how they could pay the rent. <laughs> so um, we're in a bit of a bubble. Yeah, it just seemed all a bit kind of fake to me when I read it. Yeah. But I've always been a terrible assessor of scripts. Um, and at that age, I was, uh, you know, I suppose I was just, I was really, I was, yeah, I was very anti-authoritarian. Um, and yeah, a three-year contract seemed, you know, not what an artist would do. You know, you can start to see how pretentious I was. Um, and then um, they rang back about two weeks later and told me that Claudia Carvin had been cast in the show and would I reconsider? And I, and I said, send the contract right now. <laughs> why, why Claudia Carvin? I, I was her biggest fan. Right. Um, I'd seen The Big Steel, um, a film with her and Ben Mendelsohn in it, um, about 12 times at the cinema. Um, and sh and she was literally my dream girl um, through my adolescence. Um, so as soon as I heard that that she'd signed on, I, I, it became a dream job. Mm. Um, and um, 
I, I, I didn't give two hoots about the script. The script must be good if she was in it. Mm. And um, and I had no idea that the show would um, succeed in the way that it did. Mm. And so how did life change for you uh, apart from working with Claudia Carvin, which must have been amazing and obviously a good experience given that you signed on for another three years? Yeah. But, but how did life change? Um, in every way um, and instantly. I'd achieved a modicum of success on um, or, 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 or notoriety or fame or delebrity. Um as a 15-year-old on Home and Away. So I had I had tasted fame as a teenager, but then as a 21-year-old when The Secret Life of Us hit, it was a different level and I was nowhere near prepared uh, and I'm dealing with the aftershocks to this day. Really? Um, yeah, everybody changed the way they were towards me. Mm. Um, In a good way or...? Well, in a confusing way to me. Right. Um, I didn't and still don't understand how how people could change so thoroughly. And and it was happening in my own circle too. Mm. My sister Connie rang up and asked for $6,000 for a couch. <laughs> I, I, I was just like, man, even if I had a million dollars, I wouldn't give you $6,000 for a couch. Why are you asking me for money now? Mm. My own family? So I gave her a gave her a big no way, mm. and um, and and then she rang the media on me, she and and threatened to expose me as a drug addict. Connie did. Yeah, she rang, um, she rang all the outlets and was like, "My brother's a drug o. Fucking, you know, I'm willing to tell the story." I just laughed her off, thankfully. Mm. You obviously forgave her for it. Oh, man, you know, I don't think either of us knew what we were doing at that mm. age. What's your most epic childhood memory? Um, being told that I was awarded a position as a youth ambassador at the Asian Pacific Children's Peace Convention when I was 11 and that I'd be flying to Fukuoka on the southern island of Kyushu in Japan to represent my country. There were 40 kids chosen from Australia um, and 40 kids from each other Southeast Asian nation. And um, I'd never been on an aer- on an aeroplane. Wow! And I was convinced that Craig, he's like this ginger nut genius that was in my class. This he was so smart. The teacher used to ask him questions. Like like the teacher used to seek his help. And I was I was sure that Craig would get selected over me. Um, because our school had been allocated um, some positions, and um, we both got chosen. And my sister didn't, Connie. <laughs> Connie. Right. Yeah. She she refers to that day as the day she lost her crown <laughs> in, in, in her book. <laughs> so how do you think um, growing up with two sisters impacted you, formed you as a person? I think um, the evidence suggests that uh, if you have a sibling, you're more likely to achieve success in life. Uh, in, in terms of success, I mean health, happiness and longevity. Um, having a sibling is, is really good. There are so many benefits to having someone to bounce off, especially if they're of a similar age. And, um, I think it is harder, not just an opinion. I believe that it's harder for single kids to, um, uh, it takes them longer to learn how to socialize because they haven't had a sibling and that, and that then puts them behind. So they end up, you know, um, you know, maybe getting educated later and earning money later. And apparently there's a lot of benefits to having a brother or a sister. Mm-hmm. And I certainly found that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Have more children. People is what Sam is telling you. Have uh, have more than one child. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, if you can, yeah. you know, um, not that there's anything wrong with being an only child. You know, I've got I mean, probably more of my friends are only children. Well, it's um, more common now. Yeah, than exactly, ever. exactly, yeah. especially in China. So, that experience at the age of eleven. Yeah. What was that a turning point in your life? Yeah. Like, what did you learn from it? What What changed? It, it taught me that I could, um, I could become anything. Mm. And you obviously went on because from there, at the age of fourteen, you were you were kind of discovered, weren't you? when you were in a school play, is that right? The first time I stepped mm. on a stage, mm. I got a phone call that night from a high-powered producer who gifted me a career instantly. Mm. 
So what happened from there? I was out earning my dad by 15 or 16. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I, I think my attendance in year 12 was like 19% or something because um, I was off on film sets. You're on the school of life. Yeah, I got gifted tutors wherever I went, so I was able to kind of avoid the hassle of school for the last three years. So moving forward, Secret Life of Us, when that finished, what what was going through your mind? At that stage, I would say that I had had, I had, had an incredibly fun time. Um, Joel Legerton and Deb Mailman and Claudia Carvin provided great inspiration for me, great lessons. These were people that were far further along the road than me and that had unlocked kind of, you know, what it is to be human much more than I had. I was the baby in the team. I was 21. Everyone else was older than me. And I was a young 21. Um, So whilst I loved that, um, the effects of it were... um, overwhelming for me and so I suppose somewhat naively um, I decided to move back to the country town that I was born in and never lived in mostly in an effort to try and discover information about my mother Um, because I knew that my mother had lived there and loved the place and I'd never asked my dad about my mum Mm. and I'd only ever heard fragments of information about my mum and I'd found her in a couple of poetry books um, but I had very little in my, like my mum was a myth she she was totally mythological and I suppose at the time um, everyone changed towards me and my public profile grew and everything became a lot more heady um, I decided to, to to go back to my roots and try and find information about my mum because I suspected, uh, having known that my mum killed herself, I suspected at that time that um, the feelings that I was having um, might have been similar to the feelings that my mum may have had at times. Mm. Um, and I wanted to understand myself um, through this mystery mum. So I went back and got various odd jobs around the place and kind of in my heart at that stage I think I was quite happy to if I never acted again and uh, so I suppose I was trying to avoid um, the the celebrity that I'd found. Mm. So on this <clears throat> on this quest to learn about your mum mm. was it to get to know the things that you didn't know about her? Was it to seek closure? What was... I was seeking clues. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, understanding. Um, I knew her through, through, through the six poems that I'd found published in an anthology. You know, I'd heard things like she was crazy and she was an acid freak. Um, I'd heard she'd held you know, that she was in and out of institutions and that she basically divided her time between the institutions and the housing commission flats. Mm. I knew that she, you know, was... There was a Fleming, there was a block of commission flats in, in either Flemington or Kensington that she lived in and I never knew which one. I didn't know where she was buried. Um, I, you know, I didn't know much. What do you know now when you think about your mum? What do you think about? Um... I, I know I know I know a lot more now um, because I met a lot of people that knew her and a lot of them have come out of the closet and um, a lot of her writings uh, and her letters uh, have been sent to me I I ended up getting a job at the pub she used to drink at and the publicans uh, mum was a good mate of my mum's and I found out lots of information but most most importantly of all, I found a poem um, in my dad's filing cabinet. Um, I found 300 of my mum's poems in a filing cabinet of my father's. And, um, and one of them was addressed to me. Um, it finished somewhat perfectly and, and gave me everything I, I suppose I'd looked for. Um, it's a kind of long, com- complicated poem um, about me, my dad and her. 
And at the end, it just she gets she gets really simple, and she just wrote, "All the seas of joy, rise to sing for you, boy, surge and swell and roar. All the seas of joy, sound wonderfully near, since you've been here." And uh, that was all I needed to find. Mm, very powerful. It was an exceptional find, mm. um, and. You know, I mean, the idea of her writing that some months before, you know, she opted out and then finding that, you know, more than 20 years later, mm. you know, you, I mean, you couldn't script it better. But now, weirdly, my sister's just written her first novel and I can't get through it because my mum's in there and every question I ever had about my mum is in there in just vivid colour. So everything that I looked for is actually in my sister's debut novel which I can't get through mm. so in a way the, the kind of I'm getting way more than the poem now mm. Do you feel that you have closure? I don't believe in closure mm. I think it's a farce I don't think life uh, ties itself into neat little bows and I don't think we're ever finished with anything and I think we like to tidy things up and to package them with lovely ribbons and uh, I think that's for our own convenience only. And I find the whole concept thoroughly flawed. Mm. The concept that there is no closure, I think, is very liberating. Yeah, totally, man. Um, I mean, how arrogant to assume that we could tie a convenient little knot over life at, at, at a time and say, OK, I'm done with that now. Mm. <laughs> I mean, really. It's not how it you works. Know, it's no, yeah, it's just not realistic. There's no, it, yeah, it doesn't end until, it's en until it ends. Hey, let's talk about Connie. Um, Connie was diagnosed with cancer quite young, wasn't she? At 11 mm. and uh, in her leg, a nasty Ewing sarcoma, which attacks young girls typically, typically attacks active young girls. And then when she was 22 in her womb, and then when she was 33, uh, terminal breast. So how old were you when Connie was first diagnosed? Ten. Right. Yeah. And what was that like at the age of ten? Very scary. Um, you know, we all have moments in our, or most of us have moments in our childhood where we're forced to grow up quite quickly. Um, and that was one for me. I mean, the fear in my dad's eyes. I could tell that he thought she was going to die by the amount of fear in his eyes. And that's a scary thing when when your dad can't protect when you know when you when you find out that your dad can't ultimately protect you. Mm. So recovered from the cancer when she was eleven? Eventually. Mm. Um arguably. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she was put into remission. Mm. And then it resurfaced in her 20s and again in her 30s. A separate cancer, but uh, a separate cancer in her womb in her 20s and then, and then breast cancer in her 30s. Mm. Yeah. Incredibly cruel. I don't, I don't remember, I don't really remember life without Connie having it's either cancer or the um, cancer in her life, yeah. Mm. In 2013, you did a pretty epic thing, um, something a lot of people said you couldn't do, and that was you unicycled around Australia, 16,000 kilometres mm. in 364 days to raise a million dollars for cancer research yeah. at the Garvin Institute, uh, a partnership which I'll come back to in a minute. But did you ever think before or during that year that you wouldn't be able to do that? No. Not for a minute. It was built to be achieved. So there was no moments during the 364 days that you thought, oh, my goodness. This there is... were no moments when I thought, I can't do this. No. 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 I, it, I mean, it, it, it was totally achievable. Because you'd already ridden from Sydney to Melbourne in 2003. In 30 days on a much smaller wheel. Um yeah, look, if I had have scheduled it to be completed in eight and a half, nine months, um, there would have been a real fear about not being able to complete it. But I planned it with time. Um, I planned it, I, I factored in injury time. 
I factored in things going wrong. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't trying to beat a speed record. I was trying to beat a distance record and I could afford to take as long as I wanted. There's a guy that went, Jimmy Harrington, that walked, that walked around it quicker than I rode around it. And that's partly due to the fact that I had extensive community engagements to attend to. And I wanted to stay around in the towns long enough to say thank you. So, um, so yeah, I, I went really slowly, really, really slowly. And, um, and that ensured that ensured me against failure. Mm. Well, unicycle's not the fastest vehicle on the planet. <laughs> I, I, I averaged, uh, most, yeah, I averaged 11.4k an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us about the moment you rode in at the end of that ride into Connie's arms. What was going through your mind? Uh, like anything, um, the moment isn't ever worth worth nearly what the journey was. Um it's getting to those moments that provide the relishment. Um, it, it, it was a great moment, but it was a set piece. You know, um, I had a lot on. Um, you know, I had to tick all the boxes. Um, I was at work. And I had a genuine moment with her coming in. The, 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 you know, and, and she cried with pride, as I'd fantasised she would. Um, but, you know, as soon as a fantasy becomes real... Um, you know, it, it breaks and, and it just becomes a real moment. So I, I was glad to have that real moment with her in amongst the chaos. But um, on a day like that, on a milestone like that, when there, you know, there's so much thrusting you hither and thither and there's no room for you to process what you've done um, or for you to perhaps um, celebrate it in the way that you need because it's much bigger than you at that point. So, yeah, that was a, that, I had a couple of major blowouts in terms of panic attacks on that day, and I really struggled on that day. Mm. Um, and, I, and I managed to meet my commitments. Um, and, yeah, after a long year, I was completely spent after that. Mm. At what point during the ride or after did you realise that this was the start of something that was way bigger than you? Oh, when Connie always said, Sam, this is bigger than us. <laughs> <laughs> and you eventually believed it. <laughs> oh, you know, I couldn't argue with it. Yeah. I never have. <laughs> you know, um, but I mean, basically I hadn't, I hadn't really gotten through finishing the ride when Connie asked me what next. And I was like, fuck you, what next? You, you congratulate me on a job well done. And you let me get on with my life. That's what. That's what's next. And she said, Sam, it's not over when you get off the unicycle. It's not over when I die. It's over when mum stopped dying of cancer, you moron. And I went, right, let's make it 10 million. And before, I, before I'd even blinked, um, we rolled on. I, I think I'd surrendered to the fact that it was big, bigger than me by that point, you know. Um, and, yeah, and, and it felt good. This episode of the Epic Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Storage King. When you're building an epic business and life, sometimes you have to store some excess stuff. It could be furniture, retail stock, or even somewhere to house the epic ideas that you're going to have after listening to this show. If that's you, speak to the awesome kings and queens at Storage King. In fact, they have a special introductory offer for epic podcast listeners to get you started. Simply head over to storageking.com.au slash epic to learn all about it. So where you're at now, so you, you raised a million dollars on the ride and then you set this big, hairy, audacious goal of $10 million. I thought nothing can be harder than raising a million that way. Mm. Yeah, but that's probably the easiest million we've raised. <laughs> <laughs> and you're now just shy of $10 million, Yeah. Which is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, and a big contributor to that was the Five Cent campaign. Yeah. Um, tell us about how that came about. Well, this is, I was, you know, I've been head of fundraising and campaigning at Love Your Sister. That's my primary role. Um, and we really struggled after the unicycle ride to, to get any attention in amongst the 54,000 other registered charities in this country. And, um, and um, it, was, it, was, it was a tough landing. We really, all of our campaigns failed 
for some years and our fundraising efforts were slow um, and we really kind of flattened out. Um, and I was I was trying very hard to become a good fundraiser and having to learn a lot very quickly and I was failing um, all the time. When you say failing... I wasn't raising money. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was launching campaigns and they were going nowhere. So the road from that first million through to, say, the second million and the third million was horrific. Mm. Um, it was an absolute catastrophe. Um, and I started losing sleep. I started having breakdowns. I started um, not coping. And the whole thing was was looming too large. Uh, and my sister rang up about some such other matter. Um, and I, I, I cracked. I, I said, Connie, what I, you know, what I really need from you, right? Because if you don't do this, there's no more interviews for you. There's no more keynote speakings. There's no more being an advocate and being able to fancy pants your way around the government and, and speak with the people about the things. None of that, none of that will happen if we don't raise money. And I'm not raising any fucking money. And you're one of the most high-profile cancer patients in the country, and you can fucking help me. You find a number, make it more than 100,000, and you fucking call me back when you know how you're going to raise it. And I hung up on her. Wow. And I thought, fuck, what have I done? You don't hang up on Connie. (laughs) Trust me. And I thought, I'm in the doghouse now. And I wanted to call her back and say sorry, but I feared that I'd make it worse because when I'm upset, I tend to make things worse. And um, and so I just held back and I thought, just leave it, just let it let it go. Just give it the 24-hour rule and then call her back and apologise. And she rang me at 8.59 the next morning. And at that time when I was struggling, it wasn't, you know, you don't really call before 10 because I work a lot at night. Um, my body clock's changed since. And... Um, she texted me at 8:59 as if and sorry rang rang me at 8:59 as if as if to say you up yet mate you know and i, I picked up the phone thinking that i was going to get a thorough a thorough drubbing and she rang up and and i said hello and she said i think i've got it i said and instantly the past was gone i was like what 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 and she said, well, you know how you've got your world record for the unicycling thing? I was like, yeah. She said, what about I get a world record of my own before I die? Mm-hmm. And as head of campaigning and marketing, I was just like, yes, 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 what is it? She said, longest line of coins. I was like, brilliant. That was what I needed. I needed, I needed a point of difference. I needed, I needed a campaign idea that hadn't been done before. Um. I said, that's genius. What's the longest line? She said, it's held by a country in um, in Europe. It's 70. She'd it's, already looked it up. Yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she said, it's 72Ks. And I was like, I'm not going around again laying coins, honey. And she was like, no, no, no. We're going we're gonna to line them all up in the one spot. And we're going to make a love heart out of them. I was like, oh, that is fucking genius. And she said, and get this, we'll make it out of five cent coins because you know how our, all our people are broke. She said a metre of five cent, cent coins is only $2.70. And I was like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. Um, and she said, and we'll call it the Big Heart Project. We'll make this line of coins in the shape of a heart. And I was just like, I proudly labelled her a serial genius, got her off the phone, rang up uh, Questacon in Canberra to help her with the science, the science of it. Um, they're a science museum in Canberra that run by the Department of Innovation and Science. I got them because I knew that they knew the Mint. And sure enough, I got a contact, hit up the Mint. They agreed in principle, verbally. Um, I love how you say just, I just hit up the Mint. Um, well, I knew, <laughs> well, I knew Questacon worked with them. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, and I had a good in at Questacon. And so, and so I, I was able to leverage that, that relationship. And Bendigo Bank, we needed a bank where people could dump their five cent coins. And the Bendigo had already supported my unicycle ride. So I, I tapped into my existing network mm. and I called Connie back and I, I, I said, you've got all the support you need now. She said, what's my budget? And I laughed at her. 
<laughs> and you said five cents. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I said there is no money, mate. You know, and so she ended up um, getting nine hundred volunteers in her hometown of Canberra um, to help her set up the event with no money. Right. It was a fundraising triumph in the end. Everything, everything aligned. Um, it was it was a unique concept. It was a small ask. Um, it was right before her death. Um, so it was a swan song. So we had that kind of last hurrah element. It had the human interest kind of golden kind of factor with with the love heart. And um, it was also just after I won the gold Logie. Um, so uh, just before, actually, and we ended up putting it off in case I won it. So we put off the Big Heart Project in case I won the Logie to strengthen the Big Heart Project. And when I got that Carrie Beanie moment, I was able to get up there and, and promote the Big Heart Project mm. to a national audience. Um, it had already raised a million. We had already raised a million in five cent coins before the Logies and before I was able to promote it through the mainstream. So that just supercharged it and brought another million in. in the, and, 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 and we literally did the Big Heart Project nine days after the Gold Logie. Mm. Uh, and and we had full national coverage on that event. It was the perfect fundraiser, um, and and we were getting a thousand donations a minute at its peak. And we did the media monitoring on it, and the advertising space rate for it was sixteen point four million, meaning that if we had have paid for that coverage, it would have been it would have cost us sixteen point four million. We raised two point five five million dollars in the end, nearly fifty million five cent coins, and our and and our fundraising budget. Uh, it was $16,000 for the entire event. And that didn't come out of donations. Not one five-cent coin was spent on our event costs. We asked our donors after they'd committed their metres uh, to help us pay for the portaloos. Uh, and they gave us 200000 <laughs> for a $16,000 event. And I wrote back to them all and said, you've given us too much, but it, um, if you want a refund, let us know. But I could really do with an office and I could really do with some staff. And I didn't get one email uh, request for a refund. I bet you and did. Love you, and Love Your Sister was born and Connie gifted me with all that I needed to propel me towards $10 million just before she died. Mm. How long after that, the Five Cent campaign, the Big Heart Project, did Connie pass away? Mm, I'm not very good with timings because my brain's not, not overly linear. Um, but I would say within... She was in the wheelchair. Um, yeah, she would have died a couple of months after that. Mm. Yeah. And tell us about the days after Connie's death. You talk about um, the moment when you were, I think, the day after or a couple of days after Connie died that you were walking around in a bit of a daze and then you suddenly had that realisation that Connie had a profile and that she would be written about. And so you went and got the newspaper. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about that. Um, I opened the paper to see whether my sister was being remembered as a mum, which is what she wanted. And I saw an article called Connie's, with, with the headline, Connie's Legacy. Professor Tony Cunningham, the head of the Australian Association of Medical Research Institutes, and a bunch of heads of uh, research institutes from around the country had gotten together to write my sister's ob obituary. Um, in it, um, they mentioned the Medical Research Future Fund legislation uh, that had passed, creating a new $9 billion fund um, from which the interest earned would fund new research, separate to um, the existing um, research money given out by the NHMRC. Mm. It's a, basically a new massive Medical Research Future Fund. Um, they mentioned that and, um, and my sister's role in making sure that, in helping um, put a face to that legislation, in helping get that legislation passed. Um, Which you actually didn't know she had done, I had no you? idea. Yeah, mm. she was in Canberra, I was in Melbourne, I was obsessing about fundraising, she was in Canberra obsessing about, you know, curing cancer. And she... Um, she wheeled herself through the corridors of power, begging each minister on, you know, the, any minister that she could find to support the legislation. Um, she knew it was too late for her, but she was begging them to do something on behalf of other mums. And it was the argument, it was the, it was the contention of, of the, the guys writing this article that if my sister hadn't put a face to the campaign, that the legislation may not have passed. 
and the week my sister died, the first interest payment from that fund was released of $66 million. Um, and they suggested that that $66 million um, medical research grant be made in my sister Connie's name. So while I was on about $6 million going town to town, my sister was pulling $66 million moves, unbeknownst to me. Mm. What an incredible legacy. Yeah. How did it feel? I mean, I can't imagine the grief that you were feeling when you lost Connie, but how did it feel knowing it was literally grief shared by the entire nation? Um, it's, it, it's about um, the most special thing um, you can imagine. The, you know, Connie was the most supported cancer patient in the country. Uh, and that applied wherever she went. Um, and, um, it, you know, that didn't escape her. Or, and and I, I've certainly um, been, been the most supportive sibling of a cancer patient in the history of siblings with... Uh, uh, siblings who have a brother or sister with cancer. So it was in, an incredibly soft landing. Um, I, I had had seven years to anticipate, um, seven years to grieve, and... Um, it was a wonderful process. Um, I was so, so well supported. This country's a very generous uh, place and has a wonderful heart. And I just remember it being really touching and really unobtrusive and really sensitive and caring. And the amount of times people would just do something really small a touch of the shoulder. A quiet word. It was very special. Mm. So what's next for Love Your Sister? You are just shy of 10 million. Yeah. Which is, it's epic, it's incredible. Um, and what a lot of our listeners might not know is that there's quite a specific quest that you're on now around personalised cancer care. I believe that every cancer patient, every new cancer patient, no matter where they live or what kind of cancer they have, should be offered personalised treatment. Um, we kind of got a hit and hope approach at the moment. We kind of... We give them a drug and we see whether it works and if it doesn't work, we move on to something else. Uh, we have the technology to be a lot more precise, a lot more forensic. We should be treating each cancer individually so that we can apply the right medicines first time rather than wasting so much time and money on false lines of treatment that do nothing but waste money and cost lives and fill bodies full of toxic uh, medicines that aren't working. Um, my my dream is to is to raise a million a month by next December, um, and go from raising kind of a million a year on average to raising a million a month towards this within a year or so. Um, so that so that I can start to really become a part of the solution when it comes to providing personalised medicine because agitating for change, I'm, I'm just another voice in a chamber there. Um, I actually want to be part of the solution and, and, and the country's already moving towards it. Uh, but I'd like to, I'd like to accelerate um, that progress and I believe that with the help of enough Australians I can do that. And uh, I think I've... I've I've learnt enough over the last seven years um, in terms of um, how to how to grow the donor dollars I'm given. And initially, I, I was just able to guarantee that 100% would get spent on research only. 100% of all donations get spent on research only. Our collective giving power meant that I could demand research only guarantees the, um, the you know full reporting and the right to audit. If you as a donor give your $100 to a research institute, they're not going to give you that assurance. Only $80 out of your $100 will go towards the research. But if you give it to us, 
collectively, I can I can make your dollar more powerful. I can actually make sure that a hundred dollars of that is spent on research. So I started to learn as I was growing through growing up as a fundraiser in the last seven years that there were certain things that I could do to help supercharge um, donor dollars. And what I've learned is that if I can get twenty million together, the government will give me fifty on the condition that I find the other thirty. And there's precedence for it. So, so at the at the moment, I'm on a mission to try and collect a million a month, and and to show the people um, who are donating two dollars fifty a week, to show just how much I can do with that, and how much I can grow that because I'm pretty sure I can turn twenty million into a hundred million. Just let me get this right. You're going to take twenty million to the government. Not for, yeah, not for them. Not for but, them. Uh, <laughs> You're going to just. Uh, I'm going to commit that to personalised medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'll kick in fifty. Yep. And what will that mean? Oh, that'll mean uh, we're doing a lot more than what is currently being done. At the moment, at the moment, there's been a um, a fifteen million dollar commitment um, towards personalised medicine from the government towards cancers and other rare diseases. Um, I'd like to turn up uh, to Canberra in December next year with 20 million <laughs> and say, well, I don't think the country thinks 15 million is enough, mate. <laughs> and l- what needs to happen for personalised care to be so much standard? So much. Um, but it has been proven to work overseas in, in the Netherlands uh, and the whole world's moving towards it. But we need to change. <laughs> we need to change so much about the way we currently do things and kind of we need to completely alter the way we treat the problem. And that, in, that involves re-educating kind of entire industries. <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive task. Um, but basically, when you get diagnosed with cancer, hopefully in the near future, you, you, you won't just have an oncologist and a hidden hope approach. You'll have an oncologist, you'll have a researcher, you'll, you'll have a genetic specialist, and you'll have someone there that's going to deal with the data and the annotation of that. Um, you know, and uh, what we need is a whole team of people with the most advanced, uh, latest technologies at hand um, to provide that forensic treatment. And I'm proposing that we fund it through the savings from the false lines of treatment that we currently uh, have to endure. Um, if we, uh, It's been proven overseas that you can treat cancer more effectively and more cheaply. I mean, it blows my mind that yeah. this is even a conversation that needs to be had. Well, I mean, it's this is the cutting edge. This is the, this is the front of the problem, and um, it's really exciting to know that that these these far better treatments are at our fingertips. We don't have to do any more work other than uh, like to to reach these better treatments. They're right here. We've just got to organise ourselves, and and we've got to find a way to share the data. And one of the things you're advocating is a centralised tissue bank. I'd love a national tissue bank for all cancers. Um, you know, genetic mapping is is fascinating. Personalised treatment is obviously the way to go. There's so much exciting stuff happening. But one of the biggest problems in my mind is the fact that um, I'm not seeing enough data sharing. Um, people are holding on to their IP. And these are our donor dollars they're spending. They're spending our taxes or our donor dollars. Um, kind of getting, you know, pulling together this knowledge. And, and I really don't think we can crack the code until we share the information better. So that's a big concern for me too. Mm, a lot of duplication of effort well, and waste. Well, it's wastage. Yeah, it is It, it is wastage. So there's 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 many seemingly intractable problems um, facing us in this fight. Um, but I've no doubt that um, if we can work together better and use all this wonderful, wonderful information that has sprung forth since we cracked the genome, then, uh, then we're really well on our way. Mm. And so part of this epic mission that you're on is you're literally going around the country town to town to not only raise money but raise awareness and get support at a grassroots level, which is a, which is a fascinating strategy. Well, I mean, there's only one way to do it and that's, to, and that's brick by brick, um, town by town, you know, community by community. I mean, if I want to build a critical mass around this issue, if I want to generate the public will that's required to 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 achieve a mandate when it comes to all of this kind of stuff, then I can't just put out a press release 
do a few interviews and chuck out a heartfelt thing on Facey. <laughs> um, you know, it's a complicated issue and a genuine campaign and, can, and it can only be achieved this way. And I can't think of many charities in the space that have the support and the community that Love Your Sister has built. What have you learnt from a marketing point of view in building that, I won't call it a, a database, it's a stronghold, it's really a community that you've built of supporters? Yeah, we call ourselves a village. Um, we get called everything from a village to a cult. <laughs> um, we're militant. Um, we're not just engaged. Um, you know, I'd, I'd have an interesting conversation with anyone who did call it an online community. Um, we're real people. Mm. It's something I serve entirely uh, um, because I believe in the strength of it. And my obsession in life is trying to make us as effective as we can be given our numbers. You know, I mean, we're many and that gives us strength. Um, and I need to work out how to best apply uh, that strength that we've built together over the last seven years. And that's the $64,000 question is how, is how do I best represent um, these 750,000 Australians, 90% mums? How do I best advocate for them? How do I best use our unity and um you know what a great what a great um what a great thing to behold mm. and what a great thing to try and solve and in all of that i imagine that you there are times that you really feel the pressure of all of that you know you're going from town to town you're hearing some of the most harrowing cancer stories how do you maintain focus and energy in all of that because you must have moments where it just feels really overwhelming it is overwhelming um, um, often every day um, and um, I welcome it it's um, um, it's an intense job but it's it, it, it's it fuels me um, you know it it emboldens me you know whenever somebody shares their pain it um, it fires me up. I welcome it. I've got this kind of head-on approach to it. Otherwise, I think it would be too stressful. So I invite it and I, I take it as something really positive. And, and then it's incumbent upon me then, once I've received that pain, to try and alchemize it into something really good. Without the pain, I, I don't have that drive to alchemize. Mm. So in a way, it's the very thing that I need. Um, to stay motivated, to stay happy, to stay healthy, to stay focused. And one of your um, more recent initiatives and fundraising um, kind of campaigns has been the new book that you've released, Dear Dad. Yeah. Uh, tell us how this project came about. Um, well, we're constantly looking for new and different and unique ways to, um, to support our efforts. And uh, I did a, a book of letters to Santa written by notable Aussies last year and it went incredibly well and raised us a motta. Um, the publisher was very keen to go again. Um, I'm a little fearful of second album syndrome here, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a book called Dear Dad and it's a collection of letters to fathers from notable Australians with proceeds to cancer vanquishment. Um, a whole bunch of interesting Aussies have penned letters to their old men. And you can buy it at loveyoursister.org. <laughs> nice little plug there. Yeah. So apart from buying the book, Sam, how can people help? How can our listeners help you on this incredibly epic mission that you're on to raise a million dollars a month to take it up to Canberra? Um, I'd like them to join my Fuck Cancer Bank by visiting uh, loveyoursister.org and I'd like them to commit regularly uh, to the tune of $2.50 a week. It's nothing. It's the least I can come in on. Um, otherwise, it just gets chewed up in transaction fees, to be honest. Mm. Two bucks fifty a week. If I get 100,000 Aussies doing that, I can throw a million a month at personalised medicine. Do you think the health minister will know that you've called it the fuck cancer bank? <laughs> Certainly by the time I, I reach him, he will. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is people-powered. And, you know, 
That's how people feel about it. I can call it the Federal Cancer Bank. The FCB. When, when I'm around Let's just call it the FCB. The FCB. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you, Sam, what, what advice would you give 10-year-old Sam, 20-year-old Sam and 30-year-old Sam? Oh, keep doing what you're doing. What advice do you think 50-year-old Sam will give Sam today? Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. Um, you know, I, I, I'm. I'm. I'm constantly striving to find better ways to be, and fuller ways to live, and I'm constantly striving for stronger connections with people, and for, for a sense of belonging. Um, I think if that if they're your focuses, then you can live a, a really nice life. Mm. Awesome way to finish. Um, Sam, I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to congratulate you. And I know that Australia is behind you in this truly epic goal that you've set. So thanks for being on the show. The thanks are mine. And we'll put the uh, link to how you can help the FCB, the Fuck Cancer Bank, um, in the show notes. So thanks again. Cheers. Well, I don't know about you, but I know I'll never be the same after that interview. Isn't Samuel Johnson one of the most epic humans you've ever encountered? It was a true privilege to bring you that interview. And for me, it was so full of absolute gems of wisdom, learnings and inspiration. But here are my top three. Number one, set an epic goal. If your goals and dreams aren't scaring you, they're probably not audacious enough. What Sam has achieved is epic, but he isn't stopping. It's just driving him to set even bigger goals. Number two, the power of a unique idea and cumulative effect. The Five Cent Heart Project was such a simple idea yet so powerful, and it raised millions of dollars by sheer people power. And now the FCB is doing the same, seeking to raise a significant amount by inspiring lots of people to give a little. And finally, for me, this story really shows the power of community and collaboration. While Sam and Connie have been the very visible public face of Love Your Sister, the charity is powered by their village, hundreds of thousands of supporters who are helping Sam focus on the pointy end of the campaign to raise a million a month for personalised cancer care. Truly remarkable and something we can all learn from. Now, today's episode doesn't have any hacks at the end. I just felt that it wasn't really appropriate. This was an interview that needed a full stop. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Epic Podcast. I hope that you're feeling inspired to go and do, create or manifest something epic in your life. And if you're feeling inspired, perhaps give this episode an epic share on your favourite socials. I would be epically grateful. I'm Amanda Stevens, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Epic Podcast.